Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We have a very long section to read this evening. I'm going to be reading from chapter 31, verse 14, all the way to chapter 32, verse 47. So again, that's 31, 14 through 32, 47. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting, that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths and that that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, and his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children, because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance... 
to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and, the, and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her incense and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall, de de shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within. For the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease among from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, for there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, 
which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you shall cross over the Jordan to possess. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, help us to learn from this great song that Moses has given to his people. Help us to to learn that we might understand your great works of redemption, that you might be justified, that you might be seen to be the sovereign God who is good in all of his ways, the God who is the sovereign and awesome God who judges the peoples with perfect equity, who does not overlook any sin, but yet who calls it all to account. Help us to see that you are the God who makes atonement for the sins of his people and who restores them even when they are faithless. Lord, such is who you reveal yourself to be in this song. And may it be that we would see your glory, that we would always remember all the good things that you have done, especially as we see them culminating in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might love you and that we might repent for all of our sins. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we have the very famous song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, this song is meant to be a song that the people of God would always remember. It's supposed to be a song that they were to pass down from generation to generation. The idea is that every Israelite in every generation was to know this particular song. As one commentator said, it's something like a national anthem for the people of God. It's like a national anthem uh, for the Israelites. If you were to ask, you know, what is, the purpose, what is the purpose of national anthems in general? If you just think it through, if you think of our own national anthem, what's the purpose? Uh, the purpose is very often to uh, be a reminder of the history of the country, of which the, the national anthem is, is a, an anthem for, to be a history of the country, and perhaps even to inculcate certain kinds of virtues that are meant to be passed on to the next generation. There are certain things that are to bind the nation together. As we remember certain things and prize certain uh, virtues, like for our country, clearly freedom, Uh, being one of them. Now here, particularly with this song, as it is something like a national anthem, one of the things that's very uh, interesting about this song is uh, the song is meant not to glory in the great deeds of the Israelites of the past, but rather actually to be a testimony against the people. It's a national anthem that teaches the people how good God is, and yet also how sinful the people are. They're always to remember This, that God has always been good to them and that they have no reason ever to complain. And if they ever do, it is God who will be proved right. Even when he judges, he will be right. As as all the Israelites, even as they go through the judgments, all of them will will have on on their heart this particular song. They will all remember this particular song, which will bear witness against the people. Now, one of the, the things in terms of the structure of this song is it, it basically covers all of redemptive history from the Old Testament perspective. And this really building on what we've seen in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and, and Deuteronomy chapter 4 as well, the basic pattern of salvation in all of redemptive history for the Old Testament was uh, the Exodus, salvation in the Exodus, which for uh, this song, looking back at that, and then there is the exile because of sin and the judgment that comes with that, and there is then the restoration which basically culminates all of redemptive history. Everything is going to be restored with the coming of the Messiah. So just like in Deuteronomy 4, just like in in, uh, Deuteronomy 30, we have uh, exodus, exile, and then uh, restoration. And again, the purpose, the purpose is to be a testimony, not in favor of the people, but rather against them. When they see all these judgments come upon them, they are to remember that God has been good and that even as severe as the judgments are going to be, It is because of their own sins, not because God has forgotten them for no reason, not because God has been unjust, but because they themselves have sinned. Now, this is quite important in terms of the the covenant context. One of the things that that happens in covenant documents is there are witnesses that are called, uh, witnesses who are called to to witness the act of the covenant. You think of even in, in marriage, we do this. You know, covenant ceremony, the, the wedding ceremony, there's always witnesses that, 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 that see it. And such is the way it was going all the way back thousands of years. Covenants always had witnesses. And here, the purpose of this song is for the people of God to remember 
who it is that is witnessing to God's righteousness and the people's sinfulness? And the answer to that is the witnesses are all of creation. Basically, everything in all of creation testifies that God has been good and that the people of God have sinned against him. Now, that's the, that's the focus of the Song of Moses in the days of Moses. There is something of a connection between what we do each and every Lord's Day. Um, part of what happens when we come together in worship is we sing songs. All of them are related to the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses looks back to uh, the redemption of Exodus. He looks forward to the coming of Christ. We look back on the coming of the Lord. And part of what this does then is this, the songs that we sing then each and every Lord's Day function something like this. They are a reminder to us as we are uh, faced with the temptations of the world to turn away from God, we are reminded each and every Lord's Day that the Lord has been good. The Lord has been good to us. And if we turn away from him, there is absolutely no excuse that we have. There is nothing that we can call to our aid and say, well, God wasn't fair with me. He didn't deal with me right in a right way when, when he did this. All the songs that we sing each and every Lord's Day show that God has in fact been very good to us and we have sinned against him. And this is essentially what the Song of Moses is teaching, the exact same things, that God is gracious to his people. He saves them from their sins even when they forget him, even when they forget him. Now, the way we're going to, to go through this passage, again, it's very, very long. I'm just going to be uh, giving a very, uh, a very brief and cursory overview of the Song of Moses. Part of the reason for not taking more time on this uh, is because Deuteronomy 32 is, is really a capitulation of all the theology that Moses has expounded now for 31 chapters. Uh, and so um, it's something of a great conclusion. It's a, it's a condensing of everything that he said. And so there's, there's not, a, not a great need to, to go into all of it again. And so we'll see that, uh, again, this is really fleshing out everything that Moses has said to this point. So we'll look at first in verses 14 through 30 of chapter 31, the reasons for the song, which are quite significant. And then we'll look at the song of Moses proper in verses 1 to 43. Now, within the song itself, there is um, really a fourfold division of the song. So first in verses 1 to 4, there is the call of the witnesses and the extolling of God. Then in verses 5 to 18, there is the remembrance of both God's mercy and the sins of the people. Verses 19 to 35 then are the judgments that follow. So God judges in light of, uh, in light of his goodness and the people's sick, uh, sinfulness. And then in verses 36 through 43, you, ha you have the restoration. Everything always ends in the book of Deuteronomy, as in all the scriptures, with the restoration that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this follows the exact same pattern that we've seen uh, Moses lay out for us now a number of times. And so look with me then very briefly as we look at uh, verses uh, 14 through 30 of chapter uh, 31. Now notice here, we still have the same context as last week. This is the, the time of transition. Moses is now being transitioned to Joshua. Joshua is going to be the next leader of the people. And so there is now a need for God to speak to, to Joshua. Uh, God calls Moses and Joshua to the tent of meeting so that he can speak to both of them. This is something of the, the change of the guard, so to speak. Uh, Joshua is now going to take over from Moses. And notice what is said, though. Uh, a number of places, at a number of places, particularly first in verses 16 through 20, there is a prophecy that is made. And this is something we've seen a number of times in chapter 29 and other places in Deuteronomy 30, where God tells the people, God tells Moses and Joshua, Moses must die. And after that, all the people are going to turn away. They are not going to remain faithful to the Lord. There's going to be future sins. There's going to be great evil that comes upon them because they are going to sin. They are not going to remain faithful to the Lord. This is going to lead to, to exile. They're going to have to be removed uh, from the land. And, uh, and because of this, then all of the evils that are said in chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy are going to have to come upon all the people. Now, one of the things that we see as we, we look through the rest of the Old Testament is that there was always a temptation with whatever generation was had, that had to experience the judgment, there was always a temptation for that generation to say, it was not our fault. We did not sin. 
either our fathers sinned or maybe the Assyrians are coming, but it's not connected really to the judgment of God. It's because of some other reason that all this is happening. And one of the things then that Deuteronomy 32 is meant to do, and really all the ministries of all the prophets is meant to do, is to, to tell the people, when you see all these nations gathered around you, you are not ever to think it is because of political uh, failures of the people of God. In some ways, it is there were political failures. If that's not ultimately what is happening. The reason why the nations are gathered around Jerusalem is because the people have sinned, and it is the judgment of God. All of the, all of the prophets are, are saying that, that you are responsible for the sins, and every judgment that comes upon you is because of your own sins because of your own sins. When you see all these things happen, you are not to think it's some random chance. It's due to some other thing. It is the judgment of God. And the song of Moses is meant to do the exact same thing. This is what Moses is saying. There will be a time when you will turn away. It will happen very, very quickly after Moses dies. That, that's, what is, that we're, that's what we're being told. And this song is to be a reminder to you. When you see all these terrible things come upon you, it, it is not to be ascribed to anything else but the sovereign, righteous, and good judgment of God. It is the sovereign, righteous, and good judgment of God. And that's the point of particularly verses 16 through 20. And so then, uh, after we are told that the song functions as a witness against the people in verse 21, also in verse 19, then you have a, a narrative of the, the completion of the song, and not only the song, but even the whole book of the law. Moses teaches the people the song, the law is finished, it's placed beside the ark, in verses 22 through 27. And then we're told then in verses 28 through 30 that heaven and earth will be called as witnesses against the people. And again, the meaning of that, heaven and earth, means that everything in all of creation will always testify to this truth. God is good and his people have sinned. God is good and his people have in fact sinned. This is exactly the way that Isaiah starts his uh, his. Uh, prophecy, the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, quotes from the beginning of Deuteronomy 32, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, <coughs> and hear, O earth, calling on heaven and earth to hear. And the reason is because uh, Isaiah is calling to mind this song where heaven and earth testify against the people of God. Now, this point needs to be understood, particularly today in every age. There are many who believe that they will be justified on the last day. They will be able to put forward some kind of a case for themselves. They'll be able to, to argue uh, this or that. You know, God didn't really reveal himself to me in a way that was sufficient for my believing. Uh, God was not fair with me when he took away this or that thing from me. I went through this trial. Uh, God was not fair with me. And if, if only this or that thing would have happened, if God would have done this, I would have believed it's not my fault. It is God's fault. That is, that is the, the, the attempt that many people make to justify themselves. And many people are quite confident are quite confident that they will be able to make that argument on the last day, some version of that argument. But the purpose, again, the purpose of Moses calling heaven and earth to witness against the people, the point is, is this. You can look in the highest of heavens and you can look in the lowest parts of the earth and there will be absolutely nothing that will substantiate any argument against God. All of creation will always testify God is good and his people have sinned. God is good and everyone has sinned. And there is no argument. If you call anything to your side to plead your case, it will always side with God. Every single thing, living or not living, everything will be on the side of God. He will have no shortages of witnesses who will justify his judgments on that day. He doesn't need any witnesses to justify his judgments, but everything will agree with God on the last day. Every single thing will agree with God. And so with that uh, very sobering introduction to the, the song of Moses, the song then it begins in chapter 32 and again goes from verse 1 through 43. Just a reminder of the structure of the song. There's an introduction. The witnesses are called. Yahweh is introduced, verses 1 through 4. Then there is the looking back. So we look back at salvation, we look back at all the things that God has done and what the people have done, which is sin. Then verses 19 through 35, again, that's the judgment and then the restoration in verses 36 through 43. Now, notice again then the very beginning, heaven and earth is called. 
and then God is extolled. Notice the way that God is described. He is called great, the rock. His work is perfect. His ways are just. He is the God of all truth. The, the idea of God being the rock is that he is uh, strong in the sense of being the fortress of his people. He is the sure deliverance, the unmovable one, the faithful one, the strong and the mighty one in whom if anyone takes refuge, uh, they will in fact be saved. And basically, the rest of the song is a, is a substantiation of this, of this beginning. God is declared to be good, and the rest of the song is to show that in all of God's actions, that he has either taken in the past or will take in the future, that all of them prove this great point that is introduced in verses 1 through 4, and that is that God is great, and all of his ways are perfect. All of his ways are perfect. And so then in verses 5 through 18, then, there is the recounting of Israel's past, there is uh, immediately a juxtaposition in verses 5 and 6. God is good in the beginning of verses 1 and 4, but then his people have sinned, verses 5 and 6. And the way that that is substantiated, the people have sinned, is by a brief review of all that God has done for his people and then all the things that his people did to God, even though God had so greatly blessed them. And so God's goodness to his people is detailed in verses 7 through 14. And this very much centers on the Exodus, something that we've seen in a number of places in the book of Deuteronomy. Think of um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, very many places in chapter 6 through 11. Uh, Moses is always calling the people to remember that God has been good. It wasn't because of their greatness. It wasn't because of their numbers. It wasn't because they were righteous. It was because God remembered his covenant mercy that he had shown to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so now the, the, the way that this is described is it's not just the exodus out of Egypt, but the, the exodus as it's really completed and coming into the land. So the song really assumes that the people of God are going to take the land. God saves them out of the wilderness. He rescues them like an eagle. He makes them to ride on the heights of the earth. And he gives them great blessings, particularly in verse 14 that uh, assume that the people of God have taken the promised land. So that's really the complete picture of the Exodus. God has saved his people. And yet, as we see in verses 15 through 18, God's people have sinned. They've sinned greatly. Now here, notice Israel is called Jeshurun, which is a word that's related to the idea of righteousness. So the idea is that the people of God were supposed to be the righteous people. They were set apart as the righteous people of God. And yet they turned aside from him. And they're described in as having grown fat. They grew fat on the blessings of God and yet never returned any thanksgiving to God. Now, there's a, a connection here between uh, verse uh, 15 and verse 13 and the description of the blessings. So notice in verse 13, the people of God are made to ride on the heights of the earth. They eat the produce of the fields. And notice especially the last thing that's said in verse 13, they are given oil from the flinty rock. The word for oil has the same root as the description of Jeshurun growing fat, oil itself being a fat, and the, the connection is, is there in the, in the Hebrew. So the idea there is that God gave his people the fatness of the land, fatness even through the flinty rock, that they might be greatly blessed. But rather than Israel using that to its advantage, Israel, the people that were supposed to be righteous, became fat themselves and then turned aside from God. They grew fat on the blessings and yet never gave any kind of thanks to God. And so they rejected God. They turned away from him, even though, uh, even though God had so greatly blessed them. Now, this caused them, as you see in verse 16, to go after the idols. And then in verse 18, to forget their rock. The rock, as it says in the beginning of verses 1 to 4, particularly in verse 4, the rock whose way is perfect and whose ways are all justice. They forget this great rock. Now, notice in verse 17 as well, you have uh, the same thing that we've seen a number of times in the, in the morning services, the connection between idolatry and the worship of demons. This is picked up in Psalm 106. It's also picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Notice in verse 17, uh, when the people of God turn away from the one true God, they, are, they worship idols and the idols are really nothing. They're, they're not really gods. However, the worship of the idol, which is nothing, does constitute still a sacrifice to demons. It does constitute getting mixed up in the worship of demons themselves. And so in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And this is something we've seen a number of times and something that we've seen is even increasing and growing, that as 
the nation turns aside from the true gospel and worships idols, that it, it does lead to uh, a, a submission to demons. Now, the summary then of all this, if you think of, of verses 5 through 18, God saved his people. Everything he did was good. And the people of God received all those blessings, then they turned away from him. They received all the blessings and they used the blessings even to worship demons. Now, this is something that we've seen uh, over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy as we've looked at a number of ways in which these exhortations apply to us. You think of, you know, uh, we don't look back to the Exodus. But what we've seen over and over again is that all of these exhortations all throughout the book of Deuteronomy are heightened by the gospel. Because if it is a bad thing, if it is a bad thing for a people to receive the redemption out of Egypt, the exodus out of Egypt, and then to grow fat on all the blessings and then turn away from the one true God and worship demons. If that is a bad thing, then it is a far worse thing for a people to do that after they have received the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the argument that's made over and over again in the book of Hebrews, over and over again. If you thought it was bad, if you thought there was going to be a judgment coming when the people of God turned away after having received the benefits of the Exodus, how much more will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? All of the exhortations are meant to be heightened. If God's goodness is seen in the Exodus, how much more is God's goodness seen in the redemption that is through the Lord Jesus Christ? And brothers and sisters, this means as you think about, again, all the temptations that are facing us, all those who try to say that Christianity is uh, you know, a religion of, of bigotry, that it, is, uh, that it is a religion that is ultimately unfair, or whatever else people might say, it's a religion full of hypocrites. As you even see all this temptation, the temptation to uh, go off and to uh, pursue sexual freedom without any restraints, you know, you know this, that if you do that, you have committed a doubly great sin, not just because all those things are terribly wicked, which they are, but also because you are spurning the one who has given you your very life in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given you every blessing in him. That is really the sin. That's the sin that you would, that you would spurn love itself. It's, it's really the difference between something like prostitution for prostitution's sake versus adultery, where the, the, the faithful spouse has always been perfectly loving. There, in both cases, there is a sexual perversion but it is made far, far worse if the sexual per perversion includes also traitorously turning away from one who has given you only love all of your life. And that is what, what the scriptures are describing here. This is why, this is what this song is meant to do. This is why the song is here. It's meant to be this kind of testimony. If you turn away from God, you have to understand this is the nature of the sin. It's, this is the nature of the sin. God has been good and you yourself are the one that has broken confidence with him, and you are guilty of a great sin because of that. Will it be that you, after Christ, brings you into his covenant family and shows you all of the great blessings of salvation that you yourself will grow fat and kick against him? Uh, brothers and sisters, it will meet with a very swift judgment, a very swift judgment. And this is the judgment that is described in verses 19 through 25. Now, sorry, 19 through 35. Now, in verses 19 through 35, the judgment is really broken up into two parts. In verses 19 through 25, there's first the judgment against the people, the people of God. And then secondly, in verses 36 through 35, there's the judgment against the nations that God uses to judge his people. So there's a judgment against Israel. And then if we're thinking about something like the, the northern kingdom, the Assyrians, come in, they, they, God uses the Assyrians to judge the, North, the northern kingdom. Verses 26 through 35 would be the description of the destruction of the Assyrians, the, the nation that God uses to judge his people. And so notice then in verses 19 through 25 then, that because of the sins of the people, God spurns his people. He hides his face from them. This is, would be an undoing of the great ironic blessing where God promises that God will cause his face to shine upon his people and be gracious to them. It's part of the great blessing that was to be theirs. This will then be reversed. And then we are told then that God will use other nations to make the people of God jealous. And that's because the people of God made God jealous by what they did. And therefore God will, in a way that's always fitting, 
the judgment will match the crime and God will cause the, the people of God to come into uh, a kind of jealousy as they watch uh, others receive great blessings and while they themselves are destroyed. Now, this theme of jealousy is very interestingly picked up on by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11. And he actually says this is a key part of his own ministry, uh, was fulfilling th the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 here. Uh, the goal of his ministry was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles such that he might stir up the, the Jews to a kind of jealousy as they see all the Gentiles receiving all the blessings that were promised to the people of God and that he might stir up them to jealousy that they then might turn uh, to God them, uh, to God himself. And so Paul is actually saying that the jealousy here, even though it is a judgment, and even though it will involve, the judgment will involve the uh, great calamities for the people of God, it is actually very much meant to be a blessing for the people of God. It is, even as God judges, he judges in such a way as to provoke people to come and to receive the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happened with the Apostle Paul. That was his entire ministry as he was the fulfillment of all these things. Now, this does not mean, of course, that the, that the judgments will not, in fact, come. The judgments will be sharp. Uh, of course, this was we, we spent some time on this in the second part of chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is something of a condensed uh, version of a description of all of these kinds of judgments that are there. Uh, all of the disasters that were prophesied will, in fact, come upon the people of God. It came upon the people of God at the destruction of the southern uh, kingdom in the 6th century BC. It came upon the people of God very, very strong uh, after the days of the Apostle Paul in the 1st century AD with the destruction of the temple. God's judgments were, in fact, uh, very harsh. They were very, very harsh. And the point of the harshness of the judgment is to impress upon you that this is what will happen if you turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what will happen if you turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the messages of judgment in the scriptures, you know, sometimes we think of wanting to skip past the messages of judgment. We want to focus on the things that are positive. But all of the messages of judgment in the scriptures are meant to lead you to repentance. They're actually a great and wonderful grace. You think of Jonah. Jonah understood this exact thing. The reason why he didn't want to preach the message of pure destruction to the Assyrians is because he knew that if he did, they would repent and then they would be saved. The message of judgment has embedded in it an implicit promise. If you repent, this judgment will be averted. And that is always the way uh, the gospel works. It's always the way the prophecies of judgment works. And therefore, brothers and sisters, as we, as we think about this particular song and its relevance for us, the lesson to draw is this. Uh, these words teach us, if the church sins, the church will be chastised by God. There will be a great judgment on the church. It is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And these words also teach us that even as God pours out very severe judgments on his people, very severe, he always uses them to his own holy ends and even to build up the church. While he at the same time can be uh, bringing upon all of these great judgments and, and also growing the church at the same time, deepening the faith of the elect and of the remnant. This is what is happening with these judgments in verses 19 through 25. Now, in verses 26 through 35, the question is then asked, well, what will this mean for all of the other nations? Uh, aren't they wicked? Aren't they more wicked than Israel? Will it be that God will not destroy them? Uh, we see that the questions are asked, particularly in verse uh, 26 and 27. This is where the transition comes. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. So this is what God is saying he would have done to his own people had it not been for some other consideration. And that other consideration is given in verse 27. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is high and it is not the Lord who has done this. The idea is that these other nations, God's going to use them to, to judge his own people and yet those other nations are going to say, look how mighty I am. I've defeated all the gods of Israel. I was able to defeat this great God and I was able to defeat all these people. And God says, for the sake of my own name, I will never let that happen. And so the judgment will not be full against the people of God because there will be another judgment that will come for the enemies of God's people. Now, basically, this kind of logic and this kind of description of the judgment on those whom God uses to judge Israel 
This is basically the whole message of the book of Habakkuk. This is exactly what, what Habakkuk is wrestling with. He looks around and he sees that the people of God are completely wicked. And he says, Lord, are you going to do something about all this wickedness? And God says, I'm going to judge them by the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, well, that leads to a second problem, which seems to be even worse, which is that the Babylonians are even worse than your people. How could it be that you would use a more wicked nation to then judge a people that's wicked, but they're not as wicked as the Babylonians? And the answer then is given in the book of Habakkuk, same as here, that God uses foreign powers to, uh, for his own good holy ends as he judges his people. And when he is finished with that good work on his people, he will then judge the nations that he used to judge his people. Now, this is said very, very starkly in, in the description of uh, the judgment of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10, and even using language that is very, very similar to this, where uh, Isaiah is speaking of the coming Assyrians, and he's saying, you know, they have no idea what's happening. They truly do believe that they are defeating the Israelites. Very similar to then to what uh, Moses will say here, when he says, oh, that they were wise, verse 29, that they would understand this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand? and two put 10,000 to flight. The idea there is you did not recognize that there is no way you could have won this victory in the way that you did unless God was behind it. The Assyrians could not make as one person 10,000 be put to flight. It's not possible to do that unless it were God who were in fact, was in fact doing this. And so then Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 10 that Assyria is nothing but the axe in the hand of God. He wields that axe wherever he wishes. He is doing a work on his people. And when he's done with the axe, he will not allow the axe to boast over the one who wields it. And he will simply discard the axe. That is the way that God always acts in his good and his righteous judgments. And this is exactly what we have confirmed in the book of Habakkuk. God affirms that these nations are sinful and that God will judge them. Now, as God did in the days of the Old Testament, in the days of Moses, in the days of the Assyrians, and in the days of the Babylonians, so too he still does these same things to us. Very often, God will bring his church very low when they compromise through some kind of persecution. And then God will use that persecution to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. And when that persecution has has accomplish that great holy end, then God judges the persecutors. That is what God always does, and that is what God says he will do now. And it shows, again, that God is perfectly good and right in everything that he does, even all of his judgments. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about what's going on now in our own day, we have to recognize we are in a time when God is laying the church low, and where his laying the church low could very well could very well greatly increase in terms of the persecutions that we face in this country. And, and when we go through persecutions, this is the thing that we have to remember, that we are to call to mind our own sins, our own sins, not the sins of others, our sins, the sins of the church through many generations in this country, that we have not been faithful to the Lord. We have not been zealous to preach the word to others. We, we've, not, we've not acted in accordance with the gospel. We've made too many compromises. And we are to recognize that. And then to, when God humbles us then, not to complain against God, to say that God's not fair for doing these things, but we're to recognize our sins and then to repent of our sins. Such that then there could be this salutary benefit that Moses describes here to the judgments. And we are to then look with great anticipation as even as all nations at various times have tried to persecute the church, it has always led to the defeat of those nations either their defeat or their conversion. God has always won the victory, and especially in the New Testament age, God will always win the victory. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler of the world. He is the one who will have the obedience of all of the nations. It is for us then, brothers and sisters, to have the perspective of Isaiah. When we are persecuted, God is wielding through those who hate us, them as an ax, and he is doing it as a good and sovereign and merciful Lord. And when he is done, he will not permit the axe to harm his people any more than when he has foreordained. That is the message that Moses gives. 
there will be a great judgment. God is righteous even in the judgment. Even though his people are sinful, and even though their sins demand a judgment, God will always be good. And he will, in fact, restore his people. And that restoration is particularly uh, described in verses 36 through 43. Notice again, then, the flow of thought in this song, just to review. God is good. He's declared to be good. Everything he's done shows that he's good. His people have sinned. God judges. And now there is finally a restoration. Everything flows towards the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of history is to culminate with him. This is the reason why so many times in the, in the New Testament, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is described as coming at the end of the ages or in the fullness of time. Is because this is, this is the end. This is, uh, there's nothing else ever recorded in terms of what happens than the days when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He is uh, the great final exclamation point. On, on all of God's redemptive history. And so then there is this, this description of the restoration that begins in verse 36. Notice that again, the restoration is related to the judgment of all the nations that had persecuted God's people. We see that particularly in verse 37. And in verse 38 too, uh, the nations are mocked who trusted in these other gods. And God says, you know, where are these gods? Let them come and help you now. Notice then, in contrast to these terrible, uh, these, these terrible idols who can do nothing for those who worship them, God, is, God declares himself to be the great sovereign who is in control of the entire world. Uh, some of the greatest words with regard to the sovereignty of God are said in verses uh, 39 through 42. Notice in verse 39, I, even I am he, there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. God is the true God. There is no other. In his hands are life and death. Uh, if you remember the story of um, one of the missionaries in the 19th century, uh, John Payton, uh, he actually went to, um, forgetting exactly, exactly where he went to, but he, he went to a place where there were actually cannibals. And at one point, he had been preaching the gospel for some amount of time. He had been holding worship services at, at, this, at this place. And at one point, the cannibals decided they had had enough and they then surrounded his little makeshift home and they were going to kill him. And he records in his autobiography that he, he uh, prayed and said to God, I am immortal until my God decrees otherwise. And what he was recognizing there is even as all these enemies were surrounding his hut, that God is the one who kills and God is the one who makes alive. There is nobody else who takes life. There's nobody else who gives it. Everyone will live exactly as long as God has decided. And if he chooses to wet his glittering sword, as he says in verse 41, then the judgment will come and there are none who can deliver out of the hands of God. Now, surprisingly then, the very last verse, after all these descriptions of restoration in terms of judgment, calls upon, in verse 43, the Gentiles to rejoice. Now, this is an amazing thing in light of everything that we've said. The, the judgment is going to come on all the nations that have judged the people of God, that God used to judge the people of God. And yet now there is a rejoicing that comes with the people by the Gentiles. And the reason for this is because implicitly in this is that when this restoration happens and this final judgment comes, then all the Gentiles will in fact be brought in and they will rejoice with his people because they will be gathered to the people of God. Uh, here will be the fulfillment of uh, the promises made to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed uh, in the seed of Abraham. It is, is, is going to come even as the judgment itself uh, is, is in fact coming. And so here we have the description of what will happen at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice a number of other things. For instance, that he will provide atonement for his land and his people. There will be uh, the avenging of the blood of his servants, connecting it to what was said earlier about, uh, about judgment. But that, that judgment includes the ingathering of the nations and a definitive atonement that is made such that, such that there will never need to be any other kind of atonement. God will provide the definitive atonement. There was always going to be atonements that were made in some sense, the book of Leviticus, all the sacrifices. But Moses says there's coming a day when God judges, when all the nations are gathered together, when they rejoice at uh, the salvation that God has worked and God provides atonement. All of this, of course, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it fulfilled in him. The nations are called, the, the judgment has 
has in some sense even happened at the, at the cross and uh, an atonement has been made for his people. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in these times of restoration. We live in these times of restoration. The times of verses 36 through 43, we look back on the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living in the times when the Gentiles do rejoice with his people, when atonement has been made for the land. As we saw with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, this is the basic outline of salvation in the Old Testament, and this is the salvation that was accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the song is to show that salvation is wholly the work of God, that it is wholly the work of God, and that he is righteous in everything that he does. Uh, may it be that God would grant you the grace to see this, that even as every Lord's Day that we sing songs celebrating the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in the singing of those songs to remain faithful to the Lord and recognize his righteousness in everything that he does. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word. How we do thank you for things like the song of Moses. And Lord, how we do pray that you would help us to recognize with spiritual eyes your goodness in everything that you do. Uh, Lord, even all the judgments that you perform. Lord, how thankful we are for the salvation that is found in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be that by your spirit, you would strengthen us so that we would never turn away from you. For Lord, we know that this would be an unbelievably great sin. May it be, Lord, that you would preserve us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. For we do ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.